Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Sit, Walk, Stand. During this series, we will take a short journey through the book of Ephesians and learn about our position in Christ, our life in the world, and our warfare with the enemy. We're going to be looking in the second part of our series on Ephesians. We'll be looking at Ephesians uh, 3 distinct passages because we're really going to be kind of covering chapters 4 and 5 in the beginning of 6. But we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and then chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. And again, in this series, I'm using the English Standard Version because it's a little bit more literal on the verb we're talking about today, which is walk. Um, as we'll see, that verb really means to live, but sit, walk, stand is a, is a better flow. So we're going to be using the English Standard Version. So hear now the word of our covenant God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then finally down in verse 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, and to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As I thought about this teaching, and thinking about sitting and walking, it brought back to my mind something that every parent in here has experienced, which is when you have a young child and you remember they're first trying to learn to sit. You remember watching them put in those little, what they call them, bumbo seats or whatever, and God, in his sense of humor, put a bowling ball on top of every child, you know, and they can't get that head from wobbling and they fall around constantly. And it looks to them like it is so hard just to sit but soon of course that becomes second nature and then they want to start walking at which point parents discover that everything in the entire universe is nothing but sharp corners even balls are just sharp corners because your kid is constantly smacking into them and you walk around with a sign saying they're learning to walk i don't i don't hit them or anything like that because they're bruised up constantly is it not true and so we take these things for granted, sitting and walking, but it really was quite the process. 
And I think if it was up to us adults, we might give up before the kids do. But there's something in a child that says, I want to walk. It's in their nature. They, they want to do that. The, the, the nature of a baby is to learn how to walk. They want to do these things. Well, the same thing is true for us in Christ. We've been seated with Christ, and we've had to learn sometimes to, to stay in that seat like we talked about last week. But inside of us, when we are seated with him, we're also given a new nature. And that nature wants to walk. It takes some learning. It takes some practice. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But there's something in us, in our new nature, that wants to walk with Christ and wants to walk like Christ. So let's dive into our text. Now, I want to remind us, we're going to root this because this is so essential in every teaching. This is rooted in the fact that we sit and then we walk. Children don't learn how to walk and then learn how to sit. We always sit first and then walk. And notice how Paul begins the whole letter this way. The letter begins with us being seated with Christ. And we actually get three chapters of that before he really moves into the walk phase. Paul thoroughly is anchoring us in seated, being seated with Christ, and then he moves to walk. And in fact, the first time he really mentions kind of a call for us or a talk about us walking is in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, this verse we just read as our text. And remember in Ephesians 2, he had said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, God made you alive with Christ. He raised you up with Christ and he seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And he returns to that in verse 8. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says, by grace you've been saved. It has nothing to do with your walk. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It is what Christ has done. But when you have been saved by grace through faith, immediately there is a change that God has also made good works for you to do. Out of sitting, you desire to walk. It is the inevitable result. And if I don't desire to walk, it is a sign that something is deeply wrong. So Paul here, again, is reminding us, even in this first time, he's kind of giving a little bit because he's going to go back into sit again. But even this first time, he really kind of digs into walking a little bit. He's saying, look, it's by grace you've been saved. You are seated with Christ. All this is there first. Out of that, you then move to walking. And in fact, when Paul finally comes to the walk section of the letter, which is Ephesians 4, even there, one more time, he roots it back in being seated. Notice in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So notice that little word, therefore. It's, it's there for a reason, okay? And that reason is, I've just spent three chapters telling you you're seated with Christ. Three chapters going over what God has done for you in Christ. Now I'm going to tell you what that means for you when you get up and you walk out of this meeting once we're done. But it is rooted back in what happened there. And notice, you're walking worthy of the great call. And the call is everything he's described in chapters 1 to 3. It's not something separate. It's not something distinct. The call for you and I 
in our lives. And the way we walk is based on what happened to us when we were seated with Christ. So for all of these reasons, it is imperative. We must always go back to sit. We cannot live the Christian life by, it's not like you were, you were justified by grace and then you're going to be sanctified by your own efforts. It doesn't work that way. You are justified by grace. You are sanctified by grace. And one day you're going to be glorified by grace. We will always live by the grace of God. And so it is impossible for us to walk worthy of our calling unless we first deeply and consistently meditate on the gospel and its blessings. In short, you learn to sit before you learn to walk. And even once you're walking, you are always going to return to sit to draw your strength to be gracious. Yes, like I would like to be sitting up here right now, right? It's where we draw our strength. So, so we begin with sit. Now, this week we're moving into walk. And what do we mean by walk? I said we're using the English Standard Version, and the reason for that is because the NIV correctly, which I normally use, it translates walk as live. And that is what Paul is talking about. It kind of messes up the metaphor a little bit, but when he uses walk, he's referring to our lifestyle and actions. Now, why do I say this? First off, the Greek word walk, which was peripateo, to walk around, uh, that word actually was very commonly used. It's not like Paul did something nobody else had ever done. Many philosophers use this to say your walk is how you are living out your belief system in the world. The way you live, the way you conduct yourself, they very often called your walk. And Paul picks that up, and it's how he uses it in this letter. And one can walk rightly or one can walk wrongly. So interestingly enough, the first time Paul uses walk is actually for when we lived wrongly. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the ways of this world, living like the sons of disobedience. And so Paul there is not talking about you know, when you became a Christian, you, you changed your physical gait as you moved around somehow. He's saying, look, when you were an unbeliever, you lived a certain way, which was the way of the world. It was trespasses and sins. But now he tells us in Ephesians 4, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. So notice in both of these passages, what he's talking about is concrete actions and a pattern of life. That's what Paul is referring to. He uses the verb eight times in Ephesians. So it's actually used a lot more than sit or stand. All eight times, it refers to our lifestyle, our actions. And so what we mean by walk, when Paul's using it, and we're using this phrase, we sit with Christ, now we walk. What we're talking about is our life in the world. It is a description of a Christian pattern of life. Paul's saying if you're seated with Jesus Christ, what does that look like when I go out and I live in the world? He's going to describe it. Now, Paul describes so many things from Ephesians 4.1 through Ephesians 6.9 as I sat and meditated on this week, I realized, 
unless we all want to sit here for like an hour and a half or two hour or three hour or longer sermon, which you don't want and nor do my vocal cords, I had to go through and just pick a few things. So if you read Ephesians 4 to 6, you will see many other things like don't become angry and don't steal, but rather work hard, neither of which I'm going to cover this morning. But I'm going to pick five of them out because I believe they're particularly relevant to us in our culture today. So number one, Paul says you walk in unity with the church. This is actually the very first thing he brings up, which might be a little bit surprising to us. But notice in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then notice what he turns to. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So notice Paul here makes a Trinitarian appeal. There's a unity of the Spirit. You've got one Lord, and it's all one one, one God and Father of all. And notice how he keeps using this word one over and over again. Paul is saying the first implication of you having been seated with Christ when you're going to walk is you walk in unity with the church. Now, that means that the context in which the Christian life is lived is always the church. The New Testament knows as much about unicorns as it does Christians who are not part of a local church. Which is to say, it never talks about them. You can't understand what Paul is stating here apart from the context of a local church. Notice the call that he's saying immediately is, you've got to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Can I tell you all, it's very easy to be patient and to bear with you if I don't have to be around you. The trouble is when we're around one another. My wife's in the nursery or else she would be shouting amen right now. The difficulty is when we're with one another. So the whole command to bear with one another only makes sense if we're with one another, if we are connected to one another. And so our lives are to be so connected with other believers that it requires humility. It requires gentleness. It requires patience and bearing with one another and working to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul says the unity of the Spirit's given, but you are going to be tempted day by day by day to let that unity drop away because of a little thing called sin. And it's been there from the beginning, and it breaks it down. So the gospel gives us the blessing of oneness with the church, but we have to work to maintain it. Now, the reason I bring this up is, let me be as clear as I can on this, it is very cool among many Christians today to constantly speak derisively of the church. Now, I've been a believer for 40 years, and for 26 years I've been pastor of this church. Churches have problems. No one knows the problems of Bay Ridge Christian Church like I do. Nobody knows the trouble, okay? I get it, but can I tell you, if you come to me and say, hey, Brett, I really like you, and now I'm going to speak derisively 
and I'm going to mock and cut down Linda, this is a conversation that's not going to go well. Okay? And if you know me, usually that's led to me showing how little sanctification I have, actually, because I have literally threatened people with bodily harm for being disrespectful to my wife. I should be more sanctified, but I want to be clear. I love my wife. And if you want to be on my good side, don't go mocking and disrespecting my wife. But somehow we think it's cool that I'm going to speak derisively of the bride of Christ. No husband loves his wife more than Jesus loves his church. The church is full of problems. She's broken. We're messed up. That's why we need sit. That's why we need grace. But the answer is not putting down the church, pulling back from the church. I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. The New Testament doesn't know anything of that. And furthermore, I want you to think, when I am raised up and made alive and seated together with Christ, I am sitting with Christ. Who else am I sitting with? All the other Christians who are seated with Christ. There's no, well, I got my own little personal Jesus over here. We're all seated in the same Christ. There is no being seated with Christ without being seated with other Christians. To want to not be seated with other Christians is to want to not be seated with Christ. You cannot do it. Now, what that means, let me give two quick implications on this. It means our unity with other believers is far deeper than anything else that separates us. I don't look like all of you. We don't have the same backgrounds. We might not have the same politics. We probably don't have the same taste in music or food. And none of that, please hear me, none of that matters. You may not separate from the church because we disagree on these things. Because to do so is to say, those things are more fundamental to my identity than Jesus Christ. And Christ is the most fundamental thing about you and I. And so we cannot allow these things to happen. Let me speak to one particular area that is of burning urgency today, and it has been other things. Many of you may not have known, but back in August, there was a not happy celebration which was in August of 1619, for the first time we brought Africans over here to be slaves. Racism has been the sin of our culture, and this church has been swept up into it. It is impossible for me to be seated with Christ, to love Jesus, to be accepting of everything he has done, and then to have racist attitudes towards brothers and sisters. Your identity is not how much melanin is in your skin. It is Jesus Christ. And the church had best, there is no hope. Our culture is dying from this problem, friends. We, we are not solving this problem. And the reason it is is because the church has been AWOL so often. And please hear me, we were. We abdicated in this at the founding of our country. We abdicated it before the country was even founded. You need to understand, many of my theological heroes own slaves. How do you do that? We tried to justify it biblically. 
We fought against it. The church was a main supporter of Jim Crow through all those years, and the evangelical church was largely AWOL in the civil rights movement. I wish Martin Luther King had gone to a better seminary than he did, but you know why he didn't go to the seminaries I'd like him to have gone to? He wasn't welcome. He simply was not welcome. And then, in fact, when he spoke at some of the seminaries, they had to apologize because a bunch of people got upset. Friends, that's a massive problem, and we need, as the church, to say, no, I am seated with Christ. I am united with the church. No matter what else might separate me from other people, there is a dividing line which is in Christ or not in Christ. And I have far more in common with a believer who is of a different race, a different sex, a different socioeconomic background, a different education level. They like different foods. They're from a different culture, whatever. I've got four more in common with them than somebody who looks like me and talks like me and thinks like me and everything is the same to me. Because if, if I'm in Christ with you, we are one. And if they are not in Christ, we have a basic disjunction. So I could keep preaching on this forever, but please, we've got to hear this as the church. Second issue is we walk in unity with the church, but we walk in disunity or differently than the world. We just simply have to. We have to. The unbelieving world, we're going to have to walk in holiness. So notice in verses 17 to 19. Paul says, I say this, I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul's using the old phrase of Jews and Gentiles, the people of God and those who are not part of the people of God. He says you can't walk the way you did before. And notice he describes it as in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Notice how many thinking words Paul's using. He says their thinking is empty. That's what the word futile means. There's really nothing there. They are perceiving the world in a futile, empty manner, which has alienated them from God. And then notice in verse 19 that that ungodly thinking, that futile way of thinking leads to ungodly actions. So they become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What a strange phrase. They not only practice impurity, they're greedy to practice it. They want it. Paul says, this is just the way, it's the way you were. It's the way I was. And Paul says, you cannot walk this way. So you have to be one with the church, but right at the beginning he's telling us, but you're no longer going to be able to be one with the unbelieving world. There's going to be a basic distinction. And he goes on to describe how we do this. So he said, this is what, the way the world was, and that's the way you were. Then starting in verse 20, he says, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him with the truth that is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former matter of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. So notice Paul says, we've talked about this many times before. If you remember when we did the Root Vices series, you put off and you put on. It's never enough in the Christian life. We don't just put off we put on. And so notice Paul says, look, you've got an old self, and it's got deceitful desires. Our culture is telling us all the time, if you feel it really, really deeply, it must be who you are. No, it doesn't. Desires can be right or they can be wrong. They can be true or they can be deceitful. And Paul says your desires were deceitful. So you have to put off the old self with those desires and with those actions. And then notice he said, you've got to be renewed in your minds because 
You were thinking futilely before. The whole way you perceived reality was wrong. Because, friend, if, if you and I are trying to come up with an account of reality that is not centered on the triune God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, you are wandering lost from the get-go. The fundamental reality of the universe, you've just said, I'm going to bracket, move off to the side, and act as if it's inconsequential. Not inconsequential. So your way of thinking is futile. So Paul says, you've got to start having your mind adjusted by the Holy Spirit. This is the renewing of the mind. And then he says you've got to put on the new self, which is a self that desires to be like God, to walk in righteousness and holiness. And so as a believer, I cannot pattern my walk after how the culture is telling me to walk. That's, that's not where I'm going to get my instructions. The culture sometimes, you know, broken clocks right twice a day, right? Our culture occasionally hits it right. But that's not my guide. My guide is God's word, God's law, and my power comes from the Holy Spirit from being seated with Christ because I'm going to be walking not the way the world is and the way the world uh, is like, but rather how God is like. That's immediately what we do. That's what it means to be in Christ. I'm putting on this clothing that is forming me and shaping me and changing me day by day. Now what this means is if I am walking this way, inevitably I'm going to be going against the way the world walks. We belong, to be blunt, the New Testament teaching is I belong to a different age than this passing age of the world. I belong to a different kingdom than this kingdom, which is Babylon. I belong to a different Lord than the God of this world. In every possible way you think it, we've crossed over to a different thing. So it shouldn't be surprising that we no longer live as we did before. Now, Paul is going to give us three other ways to say, let me tell you three ways. I'm going to cover three ways. He covers even more than that. Where the world's walking one way, and you're going to have to walk another. Okay? The first one he brings up is in your speech. He says we have to put on truthful, wholesome, uplifting speech. Amen? Oh my. Notice what Paul says in verses 25 and 29. Therefore, having put away falsehood, you're putting off falsehood, let each one speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then in verse 29, because he deals with anger in between. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now this is actually, Paul is building off of the ninth commandment where we are told, actually, do not uh, speak falsely about your neighbor. But the New Testament always says what God's law says there and do not do. That's the put off. But it says you've got to do the opposite. It's not enough to not lie about my neighbor. I've actually got to speak truth to them and I've got to do it in love. I've got to speak in a way that gives grace to them. Okay? In between, he's also said the Eighth Commandment. Stop stealing, start working hard, and actually give. That's the way the, the whole passage works. So we are not to speak falsehood, which Paul likens to corrupt, rotten words. It's like the, the words used for corrupt, rotting fruit. 
Paul says, don't let your words be that way. Don't let them be the kind of thing that is putrid, that is rotting, that is going to Rather, you've got to build healthy, wholesome words that are going to build others up. And our goal, notice what he says there in verse 29, is our words should, our goal should be to speak words that are channels of grace to others, encouraging them, in them a desire for God and for holiness. So this is the standard. When I open my mouth, is this going to minister grace to the other person? Not is it going to win the argument. Not are other people going to give me a like on social media because I put that person in their place. Is it going to minister grace? Now see, this is where our speech cannot be patterned by the world. Our culture right now is full of sound bites, derision, speaking nastily about the other person because they deserve it. Okay, that is the way the world is doing it. We cannot walk the way of the world. We simply cannot. Our speech, we're told over and over and over again in the New Testament, when they speak nasty to you, what are we supposed to do? Bless them. Not just hold your tongue and speak nasty back. We're told to put off the nasty speech and bless them. Okay. This is hard. Slap one cheek. Okay, see, now, folks, I know my reaction in these things. My reaction is slap cheek, I'll stomp you into the ground, then I'll pick you up and take you to the hospital afterwards, okay? Not the New Testament pattern, okay? And it's the same thing with words. I make a living talking. I can, you want to get into war of words? I can get into war of words. Not the New Testament pattern. Let me give another thing that fits with this. A key area today, we are told to not slander others. Anytime you pass along something that is not true, you have violated God's law. You have slandered another person. And what that means is it's not enough to say, well, I didn't know that it was false. Don't repeat it if you haven't verified that it's true. Which means most of what's on the internet you won't be passing along. Okay? I, I had somebody recently that would name the name of Christ, somebody I care for, they're not in our church. But I got on Facebook one day and they had a picture of a particular politician they didn't like that was supposedly drunk up giving a press conference. It immediately did not pass the sniff test. I knew it wasn't true. In 10 seconds, I had found out it was a doctored video. Here's the original video. And then you try and tell people, you're slandering somebody. Well, what if I don't like them? That, again, is not the pattern. That's the way the world operates long as I win. We do not do that. I've had Christian friends tell me, I don't have time to verify all these things before I post them. Then don't post them. This is a simple one, okay? Don't pass it on as a prayer request. We do not slander others. And I'm saying this because our world lives by half-truths. Our world lives by sound bites. And our world lives by going to war and getting the other person and hammering them. We cannot live that way. And friend, if we do, we are undermining the cause of the gospel. We are undermining the cause of the gospel. Do not go that way. I could keep preaching on that one, but I'll move. 
Next area, this one will be quick. Walk in sexual purity, because this is not controversial in our culture at all. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, covetousness must not even be named among you. There can't even be a whiff of it among you. As is proper for saints, which means holy ones. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who sit with Christ must not walk in sexual confusion or immorality of any sort. This is huge in our culture right now, but we have to be very, very clear. There can't even be a whiff of this. Now let me tell you, when I was a Marine, this was a hard verse to apply. Even after I'd gotten out of the Corps, I remember I had a guy when I was a computer programmer, he would walk in and he would start the conversation by walking in the cubicle and saying, are there any women around? I'd say, why? Because i got a joke to tell you. And I'd say, do I? I'd say, do, do, would my mother want to hear this joke? And he would reply, I don't know. It depends on what kind of woman your mother is. And I would say, would I want to hear this joke? And you know me. Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, the funny thing here is I'm the prior Marine, and I'm the one having to be the moral consciousness of the crowd here. I don't want to hear that kind of joke. Now, that makes you immediately popular at work. But I didn't really care. I don't want to sit there working and listening to all this filthy talk. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about trying to, you know, go out and hammer people all the time or do all that. Well, friends, we can't participate in that kind of stuff. It's simply not appropriate. And this sin is destroying our culture. It is eating us alive. There is so much confusion on what it means to be human and on what sexuality looks like. Now, the amazing thing is people are acting like this is a new thing. It's not. All we've done is just gotten right back around to where we were in the first century. They were right where we are now sexually. It was so countercultural what Paul is saying here. The Christian sexual ethic looked like it had been flown in from Mars. It, it, People just sat there and said, what are you guys talking about? Nobody's going to live that way sexually. That was how it was received in the first century. Welcome back to it. We're not doing anything that the early church did not have to deal with. Our culture is demanding that we embrace and we applaud the entire sexual revolution. Everything that's been going on for quite some time in our culture. And what I'm telling you is, you absolutely may not embrace or applaud the sexual revolution. It is not possible for those who are seated with Christ to walk in a manner that does that. And that includes everything. Let me be clear. This is every sort of sin. God is no more pleased with heterosexual sin than he is with homosexual sin. Okay? He's not. All of it is outside the will of God. And we have to learn to walk in holiness. 
The culture will laugh at you. The culture will make fun. The culture will say you are repressed as the culture continues to burn its own house down around its head. Thank you. I don't want to go in there and do that. And you can laugh and make fun of me all you want, but I'm not going to be part of destroying my own house. So we have to recognize that, and we have to not be deceived. There are plenty of Christians now trying to write books explaining the entire sexual ethic away. Let me be very clear. God does not change. He's not trying to be hip. He's not trying to get with it. He is who he is. The law is not something that came up with on a, you know, Moses had a bad hair day and came up with this. It's a reflection of who God is. And let me remind us in everything, God's law is for our good. God tells us not to engage in things because they're destructive to who we are. And he tells us to engage in things because they're good for who we are. You flourish by being forgiving. You, you are shrink when you are bitter. You flourish when you walk in sexual purity. You shrink and deform yourself when you walk according to the sexual revolution of our culture. God, out of love for you and for me, says don't go this way. Wrath comes because sin brings its penalty. And friends, to do this, we're going to be opposite the culture. There's no way around it. Just we have to accept it. Last, and, and I would point out, you know, it's kind of interesting that many of the people who are doing this, they're wanting to walk in unity with the world while they're bad-mouthing the church. I might just point out that that's the exact opposite. Paul says walk in unity with the church, which means you're going to be in disunity with the world around you. And we're trying and we're writing and we're doing books and we're doing searches to somehow get around that. It's not going to be there. It's just not going to happen. Last area is walk in God's pattern for the family. Now, Paul gives lengthy, lengthy instructions on this. It's the main reason I bring it up. It's because it's from chapter 5, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. And... And it's in virtually, so many of Paul's letters deal with this. And the reason for this is, it's not possible for me to be a disciple and somehow have my discipleship not affect how I conduct myself around my family. It makes no difference if I stand up here and I preach things and you say, wow, that was wonderful, Brett, I love that. If I then go home and don't treat my wife like Christ treats the church, okay? That's all useless. That's pointless. And again, we've got so many. I, I got guys, I got compassion on them, but I see all this question about guys who cheat on their wives multiple times, and then they come back a year later to be a pastor again. Dear God, what are we thinking? Why, why are you wanting to replicate this? I feel sorry for the person. I'll help him. But he does not need to be up front. Clearly, his discipleship is not affecting his home life. And so Paul tells us it has to be practiced there. Now again, our culture is distorting family all over the place, calling things that are not family, family, deriding things that are family and coming up with, you know, this is part of the heteronormative patriarchy. It's, it's reality. That's the word you were looking for. You can skip the $10 word and go back to reality. That's what it is. And God tells us what it looks like. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church which I might point out to you Paul goes on to explain is dying day 
after day after day. Headship does not mean what our culture says. Jesus over and over and over again said, that's the way the world does this. They think that they get to lord it over. To be the leader is to be the servant. It means you lay your life down. Husbands, this is your call. I'm harder on guys. I just admit, anybody who's been through pre-marriage counseling will tell you this. Because the scripture is, that is what it means. Anybody, right Duke? <laughs> I remember the first time I did it with Duke, our first pre-marriage counseling session, that poor guy crawled out of our house. Anybody reads the job description of a husband and raises their hand and signs up needs to have their brain checked. But I don't have any other choice. It is the call as Christ loves the church. Wives, Paul says, I want you to come alongside your husbands. I want you to respect, is the big word he uses at the end. Respect your husband. Encourage him. Submit to them. Encourage him to be the man that God is calling them to be. We are not in competition with one another. We are laboring together. If you are a younger family, or even if you are blessed like I am having grandchildren, children are to be raised in the ways of the kingdom. It does not matter if your kid wins every award at school, if they are the best athlete, they get everything going on, and they lose their soul. You have lost it all. Central is raising the kids in the ways of the faith. This is different than the world. I've mentioned it before, but I can't tell you how excited my kids were when they were playing basketball, and I would call, it's time for family devotions. Oh, Dad, thank you. Thank you for pulling me away from my friends. What Bible story are we going to read tonight, Father? And I would tell them, you can feel, I still got a backbone. Not going to be cowed by this. This is what we're going to do. Now, God was gracious and merciful, but you know what matters to me about my four kids? They're walking with Christ. Nothing else matters. We've lost everything. Go back to what Scott said a couple weeks ago. To gain the rest of the world and lose your soul is to lose everything. Is This is how we are doing with our families. Friends, I have to say the church is not doing well in this area. We are looking and saying, the reason we've got problems in our culture, and we go to things like politics and video games and all this, you want to know why we're not doing well as a culture? Because we are not doing well inside the home in our churches. That's why, A, number one, and you are not going to solve that by some other means. Are we living this way at home? Because it doesn't, I can come in here and worship and do all this, and then if my kids go home and see me treat my wife wrongly, what do they take away about the faith? Oh, that's, that's a club we get with on Sunday mornings. But then in the real world, that's not how we live. Friends, we cannot do that. It is absolutely essential. It is one of the biggest reasons the culture is degraded. It begins in the home. Now, let me talk to us about applying the word. We're going to come to the Lord's table. This is going to be very short, applying the word. I'm going to put the five areas up. Walking in unity with the church, walking different from the surrounding culture. Truthful, wholesome speech, uplifting speech, sexual purity, and God's pattern for the family. So what I'm going to ask is, which of these areas is the Holy Spirit speaking to me about this morning? Okay, 
if there's one of these areas, and it may be, look, we all fall short in each of the areas, okay? We're going to be coming to the table because we're going to go back to sit in just a minute because this is by grace. Even in, a, in walking, it's going to be by grace. This is not a law sermon. It's a gospel. But the Holy Spirit pricks me. And when I look at this, is there one of these areas where, yeah, when we start talking about that, the eyes were kind of down, and I, I'm feeling it. Which one of them is the Holy Spirit prompting in me? In which of these areas would I say my walk's not following the biblical pattern? Now, what I want you to do before we come to the Lord's table is I want you to be asking yourself, okay, regarding that area, it might be, you know, truthful, wholesome, uplifting speech. How can I draw upon the power of Christ to change in this area? We're always back to sit. You don't begin by grace and then accomplish by human effort. The law, I've just spent a good period of time here teaching you God's law regarding these five areas. The law does not help you to obey. The law tells you what to do. The Holy Spirit empowers you to obey. So how is the Spirit going to empower me in this area? Maybe I need to do more study because I haven't even thought about this. Uh, maybe there's got to be more prayer in it. Maybe I need to seek an accountability partner, somebody to say, would you please check up on me? You work near me, and I'm getting drawn into this at work, the way that I'm saying or doing this, uh, and ask me how I'm doing. And by the way, you never grow past it. That's not a sign that I'm immature or whatever else. I got other pastor friends that we hold each other accountable. We get together. We talk. It's a need we constantly have. Maybe I need to remove a source of temptation or stumbling. Maybe I do well in my speech until I get on social media. Then there's a solution. It's called deactivate that sucker. Okay, maybe, maybe we'll all be better off. Okay, maybe I need to get rid of that source of temptation or stumbling. It's just not helping me to do this. Or is there something else that the Spirit's revealing to me? So we've got those up there. Now what we're going to be doing is we're going to be coming down to the table of grace. And it is the table of grace. Because as you look at these and you let the Spirit be prompting you, I want to remind you the reason we're ending here at the table is the call to walk is never a call to go to your own resources. It's never a call. Yes, amen. It's never a call that somehow you've got to accomplish this now. It's a call for us to remember everything we need is given to us in Christ. You are seated with Christ. Every spiritual blessing is yours in him. And so we're going to come back to him. We are pointed back to him. The law will not provide the strength. But when we come to the table, the Holy Spirit has promised to meet us in the sacrament. He has promised. I'm not giving you my word. He's giving you his word. You're going to eat and drink grace and strength. And I want us to do it to, to ask God I need, I need help in that area, okay? I, I want to walk in that area. Not to get your favor. I've already got it. Thanks be to God. But I, I want to walk in a way that is pleasing to you and for my good. Holy Spirit, would you please speak to me and would you empower me to do this? So we're going to come to the table and we're going to sit at the table with our King. Now we're going to do something a little different this morning as we do it which is we're going to be singing a song in just a moment. It's just a song. We're going to put a video up, and it's called Not I, But Christ in Me. And we're going to do this singing it together just as the elements are going out, and I want you to hear the truth of these lyrics as they point us back. Friend, everything you have, 
on the final day when you stand before God and he's rewarding you for your good works and he's going to do that, you know what your response is going to be? Not I, but Christ in me. It's all him. So we're going to remind ourselves of that and then come to the table. If you need gluten-free, raise your hand and we'll do it. We're going to be passing the elements out just in a moment and we will do that. But for now, friends, I invite you to the table. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we come to this table this morning to sit with our Lord Jesus Christ. Meet us by your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us by your grace. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to come forward. The usher's going to get it. And again, if you want, it's probably easier if we stand. We're going to stand and sing this song together. Yet not I, but Christ, as the elements are coming out. And then I'll come up and lead us in communion in just a moment. Father, you are a good and gracious God. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive, and you raised us up, and you seated us together with Christ at your right hand. In him we have been given every covenant blessing and every provision we need to walk before you in holiness, love, and integrity. And though we freely confess that we have failed in this walk and deserve to be forsaken, yet with boldness we proclaim, no fate I dread, I know that I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. So to this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not through I, through I, but Christ in me. So through Christ, Lord, we boldly come to this table of grace, receiving pardon for our many sins and claiming our place as your child and heir, all because of Jesus, brothers and sisters, take and eat the bread of forgiveness. Jesus, we confess that all we have is because of you. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you came and rescued us, taking the wrath we were due and giving us blessing, dying the death we were due to give us life. Oh, what grace. And today we confess that even our new life is sustained by you moment by moment. Apart from you, we have no strength to obey. Apart from you, our failures would overwhelm us. 
apart from you, a glance at our lives would cause us to give in to darkness and despair. But in you, we are filled with light and hope, for you have overcome sin and Satan for us. In you, our place is secure, for you have overcome death, and we have been raised and seated with you. In you, we are given new strength to obey, walking as you walked in the ways of holiness and life. So today we confess, the night is dark, but we are not forsaken. For by our side, the Savior, he will stay. We labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in our need, Lord Jesus, your power is displayed. So to this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We give you thanks, Jesus, for all you have done for us. Brothers and sisters, take and drink the cup of grace. Holy Spirit, we long to be obedient children of the Father, walking in the steps of our Lord Jesus, embracing our Father God and His will with our every thought, desire, word, and deed. So we call upon you now to come and fill us. Fill us with the knowledge of all we have been given in Christ. Fill us with revelation that we might know the will of God. Fill us with wisdom and understanding that God's will is always right. Fill us with a holy desire to love righteousness and to hate every evil path. Fill us with your power so that we might be fully formed into the image of Christ. Spirit of the living God, keep and sustain us through every battle, filling us with joy until our race is complete and we receive our inheritance on the final day. We ask all of this through the grace and righteousness of Christ our Lord. And God's people say, Amen. Let's stand together and we'll conclude with a word of benediction. And I encourage you to receive God's blessing and his power from Paul's blessing and benediction in 1 Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the one who calls you he is faithful, and he will do it. Go forth full of the blessing and grace of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.